Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. In 1964, J. Blair Seaborn was on his way to Vietnam to take over as Canada's top official on the International Control Commission. Seaborn, before he even arrived, was given a top-secret diplomatic mission, engage with the North Vietnamese government in Hanoi and attempt to strike some sort of peace agreement, all the while providing Washington with reports on the morale of the North Vietnamese government and people and their general willingness to go to war. This top-secret diplomatic mission was conducted with great skill, but Seaborn did so with one arm tied behind his back. Vague direction from Washington, coupled with the Johnson administration that believed they could win a war against North Vietnam, ultimately culminated in failure. This is Season 6, Episode 18, The Seaborn Missions to North Vietnam. Today's book recommendation is John Boyko's The Devil's Trick, How Canada Fought the Vietnam War, published in 2021 by Alfred A. Knopf. This is a very, very interesting book about a variety of Canadian experiences in relation to the conflict in Vietnam. Now, Canada did not fight in Vietnam, no matter how hard Boyko tries to present it as such, yet there is no question that the Vietnam conflict had a profoundly impactful role on many Canadians and on the nation as a whole, and Boyko explores this in his book. So let's go back to the early 1960s in Vietnam. A fragile and shaky detente is tenuously held together between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. Overseeing what was supposed to be a period of peace before eventual elections to unify the two Vietnams was the International Control Commission, the ICC. Now, the ICC was composed of officials from three nations, Canada, India, and Poland. And if you know anything about the state of geopolitics at that time, you'll recognize that Canada represented the West or the American sphere, India, the non-aligned countries, and Poland, the East or Soviet sphere. By 1960, however, 
the ICC had lost almost all of its effectiveness. Neither the governments of the North nor the South really took it very seriously. At the same time, many, including Canadian and American officials, believed that the ICC was the only thing holding the two Vietnams back from all-out war. In 1960, the ICC headquarters was moved from Hanoi to Saigon, but this did little to give it any sort of real relevance. The North complained about the South and was generally ignored. The South complained about the North and was also generally ignored. At the same time, the Americans were using Canada's position on the ICC to tacitly support a slowly growing increase in American military personnel in the South. For instance, in June 1961, President Kennedy asked the ICC for permission to send 1,500 American advisors to the South. Canada, as a good American ally, said yes. Poland, for obvious reasons, said no. And India voted yes for the tiebreaker. So while some in Canada saw the ICC as still doing actual good, many in Washington saw the Canadian presence in particular as a de facto sign-off for American ambitions in the South. At the same time that the U.S. was increasing its military presence in the South, as well as increasing aid and supplies of military equipment to the South Vietnamese military, the North was also preparing for war. The North Vietnamese government, backed by Chinese economic and material support, was expanding its military. It was improving and building infrastructure and was especially focused on developing a series of trails and roads through Laos where the North could support the Viet Cong. The Viet Cong were a guerrilla movement in the South working to destabilize the South Vietnamese government. Now, the South Vietnamese army struggled to contain the Viet Cong and relied more and more on American support to help them do this. In fact, when Kennedy first took office, there were only 900 military advisors officially in Vietnam. By the time of his death, three years later, there were 16,000. Now, when President Kennedy was assassinated on the 22nd of November, 1963, his successor was Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson, LBJ, and LBJ was faced with an intractable problem. The South Vietnamese government had become more unstable, they were clearly losing the support of the general population, and the growing Viet Cong insurgency seemed unsolvable. In 1964, in steps French President Charles de Gaulle. De Gaulle proposed a radical solution to the problem. Neutralization was the term he used. Effectively, the Americans would withdraw from Vietnam and allow the North and South to find a settlement with the promise that the country would effectively be neutral or non-aligned once united, much like India was non-aligned. Now, while this proposal had widespread support amongst the international community, Washington was having none of it. Personally, LBJ saw no real solution to the Vietnam issue. 
He also, though, was concerned over the domino theory. That is, if Vietnam fell, then other countries around it would also fall to communism in the aftermath. This is despite the fact that a CIA report in June of 1964 informed the president that it was unlikely that any country outside of the former French Indochina would fall to communism if Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia did. Though, the thought of three countries falling to communism certainly was not a comfort to the president. Frankly, Johnson needed a way out of Vietnam, but one that was honorable in the eyes of the American public. The Americans were not just going to leave. They needed to leave with some sense of a diplomatic victory, or at the very least, a diplomatic solution that both sides could agree upon. The problem was, Johnson had no way to reach out to the North Vietnamese government in Hanoi. There was no ambassador in Hanoi. There were no back channels that LBJ could utilize. Thus, the Americans needed an emissary, a go-between, one that could carry the American message and relay Hanoi's response back to Washington, but someone the Americans could trust. The Americans considered asking several different nations before finally settling on Canada. In the eyes of American diplomats, the Canadians had a reputation as peacekeepers. Canadians had already been in Vietnam since the 1950s as part of the ICC commitment. Canadians spoke French like many of the North Vietnamese leadership. They were respected enough by the North to be allowed to move throughout the country, and finally, of course, they were dependable American allies. To find the right man, Secretary of State Dean Rusk flew to Ottawa and met with Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson and Pearson's Secretary of State for External Affairs, Paul Martin Sr., Rusk explained what Washington was looking for and hoped that Canada could pony up a person to facilitate. Pearson and Martin were skeptical. The experience of the ICC had already soured Canadian views on any involvement in Vietnam, but the possibility that war could be avoided and a lasting peace settled upon tipped the scales in favor of the Prime Minister agreeing. And it was almost a no-brainer that the man chosen for the job was to be J. Blair Seaborn. Seaborn was born to an upper-middle-class Toronto family. He was a well-respected diplomat with 17 years of experience. Seaborn had worked throughout Europe, including a stint in Moscow, and most importantly, was already slated to become Canada's newest ICC commissioner. Effectively, Seaborn already had the cover story needed to carry out this secret diplomatic mission. Folks, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate, let's say five bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up safely. We survive exclusively on these donations, and every dollar donated is helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, 
on our Facebook page, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. You can always leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you. So please don't be shy. And thank you to all who have donated. And thank you to all who have given us a five-star review. We love doing this, and we could not keep doing this without you. Now back to the regularly scheduled program. When Seaborn's name was put forward, Rusk agreed immediately, and the Americans went to work on crafting Seaborn's message. It was a balance between the carrot and the stick. The Americans wanted Hanoi to know that there were benefits in accepting an American peace deal, but at the same time, Washington wanted Hanoi to know that if rebuffed, the Americans were willing to use the stick. In late May 1964, Prime Minister Pearson and President Johnson met in New York to go over the final talking points. Now, the media was told that the two leaders were only both coincidentally in New York at the time and thus sought to take advantage of the opportunity. But in reality, the meeting was well planned out ahead of time. And while Pearson and Johnson talked, Seaborn, Paul Martin, Rusk and other CIA officials were all chatting in another room, fine-tuning Seaborn's approach. Now, Seaborn and Martin both left that meeting with pretty serious doubts as to the possibility of success. They felt that the message being sent from the Americans was far too vague to entice any sort of serious commitment from Hanoi. Yet the stakes were huge, and the possibility of peace and the possibility that Canada would play a central role in achieving that peace far outweighed any misgivings. Seaborn arrived in Vietnam in June 1964, and by the 18th of that month was on his way to Hanoi to meet with the North Vietnamese Prime Minister Pham Van Dong, one of Ho Chi Minh's most trusted colleagues. The two exchanged pleasantries before Seaborn made it clear that the message he was about to give came straight from the American president. In fact, Seaborn read out loud from a prepared letter. The American president expressed his wish for peace and the return home of all Americans. He wanted the 17th parallel, the current border between North and South, to become permanent with promises that the North would no further destabilize the South via the Viet Cong. Effectively, if the North Vietnamese government ended its support for the VC, the Viet Cong, and promised to no longer destabilize the South, the U.S. would leave and even provide economic aid to the North. Johnson's letter also made it clear that if the North was to continue to destabilize the South, then the Americans would consider war against the North and do so with the full weight of the American military. Now, Pham listened politely, then gave his government's reply. The North Vietnamese leadership, he said, believed that a just peace only came with a four-point plan. Immediate secession of all hostilities, the withdrawal of American personnel and military equipment, an agreement that the people of the South be allowed to determine their own future, and finally, reunification. Now, these were effectively proposals that Ho Chi Minh had offered several times in the past. 
Pham also made sure to tell Seaborn that if the Americans were to go to war against the North, that they would find the North Vietnamese people ready and willing for a long struggle. The conversation thus ended, and Seaborn retired to give his report to Washington. Seaborn's time in the North had led him to conclude that North Vietnam was not simply a Chinese puppet, that the people were not weary of war, and in fact, appeared quite loyal to the North Vietnamese government and Ho Chi Minh in particular. Now, Seaborn began to question the purely peaceful intent of a secret mission when he learned that on the very day he met with the North Vietnamese Prime Minister, General William Westmoreland, recently placed in command of U.S. forces in Vietnam, stated at a press conference that the United States could not rule out attacking North Vietnamese cities. The Americans had, in effect, sent in Seaborn with the carrot, ensuring that Westmoreland made the stick very public to everybody. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Perhaps most interesting regarding this first diplomatic mission was that in the aftermath of it, when Seaborn sent his detailed reports to Martin, who then sent them on to the State Department, Seaborn stated clearly that he was convinced military action at any level was not going to bring success for the United States or the South Vietnamese government. The insurgency was gaining ground. The South Vietnamese government was losing popularity and support, and the North Vietnamese people and its government seemed willing to fight for as long as it took. Now, the Americans were not happy with Seaborn's conclusions, and many American officials simply lumped Seaborn in with the small, pessimist camp already in place in Washington. Nobody thought that Seaborn's opinion was based on more than just pessimism. Nobody seemed to realize that Seaborn had a very real prescient reading of the situation. Then, in August of 1964, things became even more tense. Because it was that month that the United States passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in response to false reports that U.S. ships had been fired upon by the North Vietnamese military in the Gulf of Tonkin. The resolution was passed by Congress on the 7th of August. And on the 10th of August, Seaborn was on his way to Hanoi for another secret meeting. The second meeting did not start nearly as pleasantly as the first. The Prime Minister was angry at what he claimed were false reports of the attack and effectively an unprovoked escalation of hostilities. Pham made it clear that North Vietnam was willing to go to war if the U.S. sought it, and Seaborn once again offered the same vague carrot-and-stick promises, effectively repeating basically what he had said in the first meeting. Then Pham reiterated North Vietnam's position, which had not changed since the first meeting. 
and while this meeting ended with the two once again exchanging pleasantries, things did calm down after the initial heated exchange, nothing was achieved diplomatically. When the meeting was over, Seaborn once again spent a few days touring around Hanoi and the countryside before delivering his report to Martin, who once again sent it on to the State Department. It effectively reiterated Seaborn's initial position from his first report. Once again, the report was read in Washington and dismissed, but Seaborn was not finished quite yet. In November 1964, President Johnson won the election. And this time, it was a Canadian official, Paul Martin Sr., who stepped up and asked Rusk if the president might consider sending Seaborn in a third time, this time with a more substantive message from a president who had now secured his electoral position. The Americans hadn't even considered this. But after considering it for some time, they agreed. And once more, Seaborn was on his way to Hanoi. This time, though, it was clear that these diplomatic missions had lost their effect. Seaborn was greeted by the Prime Minister, but then Prime Minister Pham left the room shortly after, and he left Seaborn to talk with the North Vietnamese liaison to the ICC, Colonel Ha Van Lau. The colonel politely listened to Seaborn's position, then simply repeated the original four points of peace. An impasse had clearly been reached. By the start of 1965, things began to escalate quickly. In mid-February, the North Vietnamese government ordered the remaining ICC teams in the country to return to Hanoi. Now, this gave the Canadian officials on the ICC an opportunity to send daily reports to the Americans about the goings-on in the capital, particularly focused around military preparations. In early March, the Americans then launched an attack on the North with a massive bombing operation known as Operation Rolling Thunder. Now, in the aftermath of Rolling Thunder, the Americans asked Seaborn to reach out once again to the North Vietnamese government, and Seaborn obliged. The hope in Washington was that Seaborn would now engage with the North Vietnamese government that had been cowed by the power of the U.S. Air Force. But the opposite was true. Seaborn was only given access to Colonel Lau. The meeting was brief and devoid of any diplomatic niceties. Seaborn's report back to the U.S. was that the bombing attack had strengthened North Vietnamese resolve. President Johnson and his advisors ignored Seaborn's conclusions, and that same month, 3,500 Marines landed in South Vietnam, and what was a war in the shadows was now very much out in the open. Interestingly, this entire time, Seaborn's covert diplomatic encounters with the North were never exposed. In June of 1964, President Johnson even admitted that there were people not from Washington who were negotiating with North Vietnam on Washington's behalf. Months later, McLean's magazine sought to do a cover story on Seaborn himself, and he felt for sure his cover had now been blown. But the McLean story was really just about Seaborn's time on the ICC, and no mention was made of any secret diplomatic 
Rendezvous. The same month that the McLean's article was published, Seaborn's assignment in Vietnam came to an end. He returned back to Canada, having failed in a secret diplomatic task that frankly had very little chance of success. All the while that Seaborn was seeking peace, the Americans were preparing for war. Johnson's advisors proved dangerously naive and recklessly optimistic about conflict with the North. Seaborn's reports back to the United States were generally ignored, and of course, the rest is history. Seaborn warned of a long, difficult struggle for the Americans if they went to war in Vietnam, and sadly, for the nearly 2 million Vietnamese dead and the nearly 60,000 American soldiers dead, he turned out to be tragically prophetic. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.